This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Driving Outcomes, your source for inspired solutions to address the most pressing leadership concerns of today. On each episode, we examine the latest developments in applied research and education and how it impacts your business and social outcomes. Our host, Tracy Shirachi, brings you conversations with groundbreaking researchers, educators, and business leaders who are changing the face of leadership every day. And now, here's Tracy. So I have the pleasure today of introducing both Chris Kello and Mary Hegarty. Um, Chris is from University of California, Merced, and Mary is part of University of California, Santa Barbara. And Chris and Mary, if you don't mind, kind of sharing with you, share with the audience your role and your expertise in terms of research. And we'll take it from there, but we'd love to hear more about what you both are working on and ask you questions about that. Okay, um, I can go first. Um, I, so I am... Um, I'm a professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at UCSB, and my area is cognitive psychology and particularly spatial cognition. So things like, you know, how you find your way, <laughs> how you learn the layout of new places, how you find your way in the environment, that sort of, you know, and, and interested in individual differences. Um, you know, why does somebody have a good sense of direction and somebody else has a poor sense of direction? And, um, but then I have another role as associate dean of the graduate division. So that's a half-time administrative position. And in that um, really, you know, it's all about sort of supporting our graduate, all the graduate students from across the university, um, you know, everything from their academic programs to their funding to um, professional development, et cetera. Nice. And Chris, what about yourself? Sure. Hi, everybody. My name is Chris Kello. Uh, so I'm a professor of cognitive and information sciences. Mary's a, a colleague of mine, and we've known each other for many years. Um, so I've been a professor at Eastern Merced since 2008. And I also work a little bit on search, uh, how people find their way in the environment as well. I take a little bit of a different perspective than, than Mary, but I think it's very complementary in that. So we work on something called foraging. Um, which I think we all sort of are familiar with that. We understand what it would mean to go out into a forest and you know, forage for mushrooms, for example. But this is a really fundamental uh, function that all moving organisms have to engage in, including people. And we study how people do it, basically. And we do that using virtual environments, for example. Um, I do have other lines of research. I'll just very quickly mention, uh, we also study coordination in speech. So how people talk to each other, for example, right now, um, we have a study going on where we are studying how people interact over Zoom, uh, given the current situation that we're in, we're having a lot of interactions on Zoom. And we want to understand whether the kind of coordination that you see in person, when people are talking to each other, how they take turns, how they start to sound like each other, that's hmm. kind of coordination is very common. You start to take on the speech of the person you're, you're talking to. Does that happen on Zoom as well? Um, so far, the evidence, by the way, it's very early days, but so far the evidence is that Zoom does affect how we, no, no surprise, Zoom does affect how we coordinate uh, when we're interacting just like we are now. Um, so lastly, I'll say that I'm currently also the interim vice provost and dean of graduate education. I was also associate uh, uh, dean, just like 
married uh, until recently I took over as interim dean. And so I oversee the graduate studies at UC Merced. Uh, very briefly, you know, we have about 740 PhD students. So we're, we're young, we're, we're, we're new and growing. Um, but most of those students, if I said, are PhD, they're doctoral students. So they are doing research in labs like Mary's and my own. Uh, and uh, we, I oversee their, their care and feeding, if you will. I make sure that they are doing well and they are making progress towards their degrees and graduating and, and going on to, to great careers. And are the graduate students now, are the PhDs, are they in classes right now? And when you refer to labs, are they doing things virtually? How are they managing their lab work at respective uh, campuses? That's one of our biggest challenges right now is that a lot of them, you know, I mean, yes, all classes right now are online. Um, typically, PhD students take, you know, their classes more in their first couple of years. And as in their later years, they're really more focused on their own research. Um, and that's challenging. We've been able to get a lot of, uh, you know, some students back into labs. We have very strict protocols and, mm -hmm. you know, about distancing and maybe one person in a room at a time, et cetera. So because of that, some students have been able to get back, but others are challenged. I mean, students in the humanities who need to travel to archives or something, you know, are still really limited. So it's a very challenging time for questions. Because for their research, if I'm not mistaken, like they need to do observations, right? Like when you're talking about a lab for reference of the audience, it's not maybe necessarily like lab or chemistry lab that we're talking about, right? We're referring to probably observations, I'm going to imagine, and mm -hmm. interactions because you're talking about essentially like cognitive affirmation or interactions or observation. Yeah, I know. I mean, we do, yeah, we do experimental studies where we bring people into the lab and have them run through various tasks. I think both of us do stuff in virtual environments, for example. So that has really not been able, in, you know, human subjects research is currently not allowed at our university. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been able to do some, some aspects of our research in online studies, but we're definitely limited in what, types of studies we can do right now. Very quickly, I'll just add that the Zoom study that I just mentioned, mm -hmm. we are doing that precisely because that was a study that was going to be in person and mm -hmm. we pivoted. We had to change it to be like this because just as Mary said, human subjects research, any research where you really can't provide the kind of social distancing that you need to mitigate the risk of COVID, that is currently still not operational and probably won't be at least on, I think all the UC campuses, I think I can speak on behalf of all Yeah, these. you can speak on behalf of all the UC campuses. That, yeah, that, you know, this is going to be, it's going to take some time for that kind of research to get back. I want to echo that, Mary, like Mary said, other kinds of laboratory research where your hands-on activity with chemicals, for example, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as long as you can be socially distanced, pretty much all the campuses have that kind of research back. But um, another kind of research that's besides human subject would be field studies where you have to travel. There's a lot of areas where that has to happen and that's very difficult right now. And so there, it, depending on the kind of research that you're doing, yes, this is, a, this is tough for, for, for the research enterprise and for the graduate students in particular trying to make progress. Towards well, them. and I just wanted to highlight that too, because oftentimes when people think of research or they, or they refer to labs, they automatically, mm -hmm. the thought goes to like chemistry or like, you know, but there's also different types of labs and observation that's needed. But I think what you're also highlighting is that research is still continuing despite COVID. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's acknowledging what kind of pivots or adaptations can be made to still continue. 
And I think what's interesting that you guys brought up around, I think, spatial thinking and foraging, I'd be interested to know like how the virtual environment is affecting our cognitive understanding, because a lot of us refer to mental health and we're acknowledging mm -hmm. even in the business community and all our interactions is that everyone has overload, overstimulation, all these different things that are affecting us. And I think mental health is very much a broad subject matter, but something that people can wrap their head around. But I'm curious to know, as it relates to your both of your expertise, what you guys are observing. And I, I'll give an example. Like I've been on Zoom since March, like everybody else. And I was driving one day, hadn't driven for months, right? Was sheltering in place like everyone else. And I noticed my ability to judge cars, right? Which is a spatial mm. thing was... Um, challenge and I there was a part of me that acknowledged that it wasn't safe for me to drive because translating or my brain or my eyes from one dimension to three dimensions and what I had grown accustomed to just driving a car right which was almost very natural I've been doing it for 30 40 years right not something you give a lot of thought to but I was noticing that that was being affected just by sheltering in place and not seeing um not driving as much so i'm mm -hmm. curious to hear from you guys what you're observing mm -hmm. or sharing with the audience kind of your knowledge of how how are our brain and our cognition and all of that how does that work and operate and what's mm -hmm. truly being affected going through this pandemic mm -hmm. so maybe Ma mary i'll start not with the spatial navigation type of question because i think mary i'll give you a moment to think about that one. <laughs> I can go back to the co coordination conversation and then I can say something more broadly about students and learning yeah. and how that's affected, right? That'd be so great. Start, starting with the coordination. So something that we do naturally and is really important to establishing rapport, uh, common ground with somebody in a conversation, understanding is something called back channeling. So what it's, it's something that we do subtly and we don't realize how much we do it, which is <laughs> when while you're talking, I will also talk at the same time and interject, uh-huh, okay, hmm, that kind of, you know, that's called back channeling. And you're listening to me while you're talking. Zoom doesn't work well at all for that. And it is definitely affecting how we, how we, how we, our ability to communicate and establish common ground because specifically what we're learning is that back channeling is really limited, almost non-existent. So turn-taking becomes very different. Now, I don't know if that, to your point, if that translates to the real world and somebody now goes and has a conversation in the real world and you're still kind of having trouble coordinating because you've been on Zoom all day. I, I, don't, I don't have any evidence one way or another on that. Um, no, but, but what you're thing. saying is interesting. Back channeling is a significant way of which we communicate. And you're right. Mm -hmm. Like there's there tends to be more interruptions and people don't know if to take turns. Like it's really difficult Correct. to interact on Zoom, like as we're interacting and learning mm -hmm. right here too. So it's interesting yeah. that there's a reference yeah. to that. Yeah. And this is something that normally, you know, you don't even notice, right? Mm -hmm. This is not, it just happens naturally. It's in our unconscious or, you know, it's not in our conscious mind. Now we, you know, cognitive scientists, language scientists have been studying back channeling in the real world for decades. And so we do know about this. And now we really see, you know, it, 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 it firsthand what happens when you take away that back channeling. Yeah. The last thing I'll just say is on, on the broader picture of students. Um, yes, we, there's lots and lots of surveys, evidence, both anecdotal and more direct and indirect evidence about the troubles that students are having mm -hmm. with learning in this kind of environment. Uh, 
we, we are really learning how important it is to have a support system around you, have people around you and a space that is supportive of your learning. And some students may have that at home. And I think they're, you know, again, my, my conjecture would be that they're doing better than the students who for any number of reasons aren't so fortunate to have a kind of supportive environment in their home. And it, and, and it really has a huge impact on, on, on learning. And, and, and uh, so yes, we educators worry a lot about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. And I, I still don't know that I have a good question, a good answer to your question about driving and navigation, except that maybe, you know, I think, you know, I mean, one thing, you know, we talk about as cognitive scientists is, you know, you have certain knowledge and then when you use it, it's activated. So it's sort of there ready, you know, to be drawn on. So if you have some, some type of knowledge, whether even if it's something very procedural, like knowing how to keep space <laughs> cars and it just, you haven't activated that knowledge in the last five months, it's not going to be as available as it was when you were doing that every day, you know, or the same, or maybe the same thing about, you know, knowing, you know, how to get you know, out of a particular environment so you can, you can uh, plan the most efficient route. Uh, you know, that, that knowledge may be sort of more like tucked in the background now because you haven't used it for five months, you know, and that might be a reason why it's, um, you know, it's not coming to mind as quickly, yeah. Which I appreciate both of your explanation because I think they're both valid in terms of, we don't acknowledge how much of our actions are to a certain extent subconscious. Like when we're driving, it's like, we've been doing it so long, we do it every day, not a big deal. Don't even think about it. Sometimes you miss your exit because you're not even thinking about, right? It's just, it's like riding a bike. There's certain things that we know and we rely on that we've been doing mm -hmm. repeatedly that we don't think about. And then what you're noticing, and I think you guys are both highlighting is the changes of events are, they do have an impact and we don't even acknowledge some of those conscious changes that are going on. But even after, you know, this ends, if we have a vaccine, you know, we're no longer in this period of time, there will be another type of impact as a result of um, the lost, for lack of better description, consciousness or mm -hmm. subconscious mm -hmm. actions. So um, I think that's really interesting and something for, I think, listeners to understand is it's not only the impact of what's going on right now, there is also an additional impact thereafter, which we need to acknowledge. And especially, I know I've, I have young kids and I worry about in terms of education, they're young enough, like kindergarten and I have a one-year-old, but even for them, the last number of years, whether or not it's a year or two, that's a lot in terms of education because it's the foundation from which you're trying to build upon. So mm -hmm. it's good to hear from you guys, like how are the schools addressing that and what can all of us do as a community to better support that? Because it's instrumental in terms of advancement and um, what I call transformational change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So curious to know, like as it relates to kind of the work we've done with you guys around evaluation, what has what have some of the results that you guys have seen and how has that impacted the changes or decisions that you're making um, both at your respective schools in terms of um, the programs, the research, but also like bigger picture as in each of your respective schools, what are you guys focused on right now mm -hmm. as administrators and as leaders at each respective school in terms of how do we focus on the issues at hand and really ensure that we mitigate some of the negative impacts that otherwise would occur mm -hmm. as a result of such right now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I guess I can go first and maybe we need to set the stage a bit and talk about the AGEP, the Alliance mm -hmm. for Graduate Education and the Professoriate. This is the project that Mary and I are collaborating on that we're working with your team to on evaluation of it. So we are interested in, is, this is an NSF funded program on broadening the professoriate. So what that means is we want professors to have the same kind of backgrounds and demographics of the students that they are teaching. Think of it that way. And uh, you know, what we, what we know in uh, higher education research has shown time and again is that as students advance through higher education, uh, they be, tend to become less diverse over time mm. for all sorts of reasons. Where this project is involved in trying to counter that trend and see if we can broaden the professoriate. And the way we're doing it is by partnering with uh, California State University uh, um, campuses, Fresno and Channel Islands. And basically there's a place where we hope that we can have our PhD students at Santa Barbara and you seen her said, um, get more teaching experience, get more teaching training and mentorship so that they are better prepared for the academic job market for all sorts of jobs, including jobs, for example, at the California State Universities. Um, and I wanna sort of wrap up my part of this and just say that um, so far, one of the things that I think both of our campuses, and I'm gonna chime in on especially, is that this part, these partnerships between the University of California and the California State University system, there's a lot of potential value there that I think mm -hmm. we can tap into. And I think this program is starting to see that value. So for example, exchanges, just the very fact that you have PhD students in a UC system, which is very different than the California State system mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, getting experience and making connections with professors and mentors and students at the CSUs and then reciprocally, those, that networking means that we can potentially recruit students from the CSUs who are qualified and interested in graduate education and better get them into our programs. And all of this will hopefully not only, you know, enhance our educational system writ large and, and, and our partnerships, but specifically head towards broadening the professoriate by getting more diverse students into graduate programs and getting those students more into pr professor positions. And also, you know, just better serving the diverse students that we already have, because, you know, both of our campuses are what are designated, what are called Hispanic serving universities. Um, Merced has always been one from the start and UCSB was actually the first university of, in the um, American Association of Universities, which is kind of the elite universities, it was the first one to be designated a Hispanic serving institution. So, um, so you know, we're, this is really important for us to be both, you know, a high level um, research university and also Hispanic serving. And, you know, we want our, now more than 25% of our students are Hispanic, that's growing. And we want them to be able to see graduate students and professors that are like them, you know, so, um, so that's a big part of what we're trying to do. Well, and I think the program has a lot of benefits, like you said, the cross collaboration across schools, right? It's not just only research within a certain school, but you guys are working with each other across schools and partnering and all working towards the same goal, as well as the 
Cal State system, which is also trying to do the same thing, which is also educate students. And mm -hmm. like you said, the approach may be different, whether or not it's Cal State schools versus the UC schools, but the same objective is trying to be achieved as it relates to higher education. And mm -hmm. I think more importantly, I know with both of your schools, like focusing on the Hispanic population is huge as well in terms of demographics. And I was just gonna ask you, um, diversity, when you say you've seen less diversity, defining that for the audience that we're, we're in this dimension, we're talking more about racial diversity than diversity of perspective. Because a question that came to mind was, you know, sometimes when you're in a particular field, you're so focused on that one field, you're not necessarily studying other fields or other research topical areas. So diversity is, I was, it threw me off a little bit, but I think yeah. what, for the I, audience, we're, we're focused about, on yeah. nationality or racial diversity. We're talking about racial diversity, yeah. And, but I think actually Chris and I both have programs that are about interdisciplinarity too, which is about diversity of perspectives. I mean, we we both, at both campuses, grad divisions have been sort of working on those issues too. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, and, and I don't know that they're necessarily completely independent in the sense that people who come from different backgrounds have different perspectives too. Right. Now are some of the work, like as you guys are working with the students and you'll measure this over time to see what the impact is as hopefully the objective is that, like you said, to elevate or encourage um, PhD candidates to continue to pursue, hopefully over time, higher positions within academia and their professional career. Um, is the objective also to look at it even outside of, um, you know, your particular schools or this a Cal State system, but it could be amongst private schools or mm -hmm. it could be, you know, different geographic areas where there may mm -hmm. not be a um, high amount of um, Hispanic individuals per se, mm -hmm. but it could be more broader in terms yeah. of focus too. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I'll jump in real quick and then Mary, you go. So, so yes, and in fact, you know, your team has really helped us understand and work with NSF to frame what we're doing as what we call a model. It's a, we are, it's an, it's a strange way of thinking about a model. It's an administrative model, meaning that exactly to your point, what we do between these four campuses may be applied. What we, we will sort of develop best practices, we mm -hmm. will develop materials that then could be applied at other UC and CSU campuses, at other state systems that might be tiered, like in Texas, for example, or just more generally anywhere where you might see partnerships are possible between universities that are producing, perhaps that are more focused on teaching and universities that are more focused on research and developing partnerships. And, and yes, so absolutely that's, and NSF, their main goal really in this AGEP um, program is to develop models so that they can be disseminated throughout the country. And they can apply, I think it sounds like to other nationalities or mm -hmm. other like goals too, like, but the model itself can be leveraged, it sounds like too, mm -hmm. to be shared mm -hmm. if you wanted to focus on, you know, African-Americans or Asians, whatever it may be, like there's a, Absolutely. there's a model at which Correct. you guys have kind of tested and refined it and been able to get feedback on from which other people can now apply the same fundamentals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and again, what your team is doing, they're doing some of the, you know, testing, you know, they're, they're the ones who are administering 
questionnaires to people before and after they participate and they're identifying what are the successes of this program, what are the, you know, what are some of the challenges, what are, you know, that we're facing that would need to, would need to be overcome by another system who tried to run this model. So that's really the role of the evaluators is, you know, to, to look at all that, to assess all that and then report back to us and they get, send us a report every year, which helps us then think about what, what are we going to change for the next iteration, et cetera. Well, I'd love to do a follow-up with you guys sometime because I think a lot of the listeners would be interested to hear the outcomes of your study, right? And hear um, what results have occurred. And I think it's a, especially right now, diversity is a very broad, um, also what I call a hot topic also in terms of Mm -hmm. people's engagement and wanting to know more. So I'm sure that more broadly, they'd love to hear what you guys are both doing. And I really appreciate both of your time just to share it you know, with the broader audience, what's going on on both of your respective campuses, as well as in your field and how it relates to our everyday life, especially since all of us are in um, or on Zoom, but also acknowledging that there is a cognitive component to that, um, that I think all of us can benefit from those learnings. So I really appreciate it. It's been fun. (laughs) Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Driving Outcomes. If you'd like to listen to or download other episodes of Driving Outcomes, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast networks. Please also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn as The Mark USA. We hope you'll join us again next week for more conversations with today's leaders who are driving for results and achieving phenomenal business outcomes. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating $1 million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. 
Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.